In a single breast, I have never seen more wealth of wisdom old, but with treacherous wiles must I now betray thee. Up ye ertu, the verger of Dagadur. Up are you, dwarf, in the day. New skin soul, Isali. Now shines the sun in the hall. You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean, how's it going? David, it's going great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I had, uh, I had a good Easter. We got this ham from a local butcher. So it was like locally raised, locally cured ham, which uh, I think I tried their smoked ham once, but this was a new a new thing I wanted to try. And uh, just doing kind of some of the, the, the Easter traditions, the hiding the Easter eggs around the house and around the yard, things like that. But yeah. About... And I'm like that just running around finding the eggs. Oh yeah. No, he had a, he had a great time with the, uh, the eggs and the little toys and we had um, toy, toy dinosaurs. So that he might believe that um, Easter has a lot to do with dinosaurs, but that's another story. Hey, dinosaurs also have eggs. So or at least we, like, I think I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not an expert there. But... Did some dinosaurs give live birth? That's a good question. I saw, I saw Jurassic park and I do know there was eggs. So, yeah. but were they all um, eggs? I don't know if they were all eggs. That's a good question. It's, it's definitely a message good. on Twitter if they know about dinosaurs <laughs> giving live birth. <laughs> yeah, definitely. How, was your, how was your holiday? Uh, it was good. I didn't, Beth and I didn't do anything. We spent Sunday cleaning up in the morning. And then like in the afternoon, we both just like took time, like to read books, like to read our books or something. I spent some time, spent some time by the fire outside. Got a little bit of reading done on the saga of the Icelanders. I, I ordered a Germania by Tacitus, which I think is good for our, our podcast as well. So we we took it easy for the most part. Nice. It was fun. Sounds good. And uh, what's your drink? You got a drink this week? I, I do. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it's the Pinball Lizard Double IPA. It's uh, Mustang Sally Brewing Company, and it's based out of Chantilly, Virginia, which is Northern Virginia, probably like 20 to 30 miles uh, west of where I live. It sounds like, yeah, I think before since I left the BC uh, metro area. I don't think that I, I knew of any like Virginia breweries, but there's got to be so many good ones now. It sounds good. Yeah. There's a lot of Maryland too. Like I know a couple, like uh, last week I had a Maryland, a Maryland beer, but I think the craft brewery industry has like definitely picked up over the last like uh, 10, 10 or so years, like everywhere pretty much. But back to Easter, I know, um, I know you decided to be topical for this week's podcast and you did a little research on the origin, what it is today known as Easter. Uh, yeah, no, it's it stuff I was researching for myself that I found very interesting. And then I'm like, this is a perfect little little segment for the show. And it ties in a little bit to last week's the Thor, Thor and the Bride. Uh, I'll try to make that connection in a moment. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, reading about what is pagan Easter. We all practice Easter. And I think a lot of people are somewhat getting more familiar with this idea of like that even Christmas and, and then Easter too are holidays that they're Christian holidays, but they in, incorporated the previous pagan practices kind of to get people's buy-ins. And so people could keep doing the traditions they used to do. Just like in some countries, the saints are kind of named to reclaim some of the old gods of different uh, cultures. So a bunch of things I learned this week is I'm trying to understand what, what is a pagan Easter all about. So that the English word Easter, it comes from the name of a German, you know, very old German goddess that would either be named Eostre or Ostara. It's interesting because in the Latin world, in you know, in Spain and Italy, in Latin, Easter is Pasqua. So Dia de la Pasqua is what Easter is called. That uh, and it's interesting that in Sweden it's also called Pasque, P-A-S-K-E, but in most of the other Germanic language countries, 
Easter is actually named after this old German goddess. There's, the word doesn't come anywhere out of uh, Christianity. As I'm looking, I'm mostly doing a lot of Wikipedia, but I looked in a couple of books as well, like Matthias Nordvig's book on Asatru. that talked mm. a little bit about uh, Ostara. But uh, Jacob Grimm comes up all the time. The guy who did Grimm's fairy tales, he was a German linguist and folklorist. So he did a lot of searching, I think back 1800s, about what were the old uh, stories, the old cultures. And there's very few actually like surviving tales about a Germanic goddess of the spring. A lot of where they get this information from is studying, they call it proto-languages. Basically, they see what are all the, the words in our existing languages, and they kind of intuit what mm -hmm. where these words must have came from. So names very similar to Eostre come up one place in Old Norse, the name Ostri, right? So there's... It means east, right? Ostre, yeah. And it just means east, right? So this idea that Easter is when the sun comes up in the east, right? When the sun, after the winter, the sun is coming up higher and higher in the sky. That's one of the major aspects of what we're celebrating in the spring, right? But yeah, Austria is the dwarf who holds up the east corner of the heaven. So it's a male character. It's not a goddess. And then in uh, some of the Baltic countries, they actually do have mythologies about a goddess. So basically people have like lost or forgotten about the Germanic goddess uh, Ostara or Eostre. Basically they... Kind of people have had to reinvent it to try to understand what maybe was there. But in, I'm trying to remember if it was Lithuania, I think, they have stories about a goddess named Bestra. If you take the V off, that word Istra has the word East kind of built into it as well. That one is a goddess very similar from a sibling pair, like Freya and Freyr, right? So as we think of, is Freya kind of a spring goddess? Yeah. Maybe, right? But I, that's where I think that story of Thor, the bride, is sort of them trying to make sense of this. Like there's a feeling that there needs to be a spring goddess but is it Freya or is it somebody else? Or maybe it's just Thor in a wedding dress, right? That's the idea of like women in white dresses is apparently goes back a long time. Jacob Grimm, he found this, I like this quote that he had, and then I'll kind of connect it back to the Thor idea. It says, the maidens clothed in white at Easter, at the season of returning spring, they show themselves in the clefts of the rock and on mountains, suggestive of the ancient goddess. So basically what he's describing there is that when the sun starts to rise, you know, the angle of the sun changes, these flashes of light show up in the mountains that look like maybe spirits or goddesses or women in white dresses as the uh, light reflects off the mountains. It's kind of just an interesting poem that I don't actually fully know the source, found it on Wikipedia. But I, I like it because it reminds me of the story of Thor, where he's in his white dress and he's, his chariot, he's charging across um, Jotunheim and the mountains are exploding around him, right? And I think just somehow these ideas like have been linked together, right? People, like, so like those are the lights around the mountains. Right. As, yeah. As, as the sun comes back in Easter and the light, the mountains kind of light up, it's like Thor's blowing up the mountains again. So that's, it's, it's funny because there's not like a good story to actually connect Eostre, but I think that's, she's reflected a little bit in Thor there. Two other little things about Easter traditions that go back to the pagan tradition, right? They have nothing to do with Christ being on the cross and then that he dies and then he's resurrected. Exactly. Right. But bonfires are a very pagan aspect. I like that Sean ended up doing that without probably thinking too much about it. It's just, it's Easter. It feels like I should have a bonfire. Go read a book, right? Then <laughs> for David, yeah. I'm hiding eggs. And there's this story that the Jacob Grimm mentions that for Ostara, one of the few stories they have is that there was a bird that did something to serve the goddess and please the goddess. So she blessed the bird by turning it into a rabbit. And then it continued laying eggs in her honor. And that is where the Easter bunny actually comes from. But I need to figure out what his sources are. I think it's just books by Jacob Grimm. He collected all this stuff. Where he found it is that's a whole other story. Yeah, I mean, you you have to like think of the ideas like of like an Easter bunny and say there's got to be some like pagan tradition here. It's like yeah. 
how does a bunny fit into like this holiday that most of us probably grew up with in the United States as like a, you know, devout Catholic yes. celebration. So it's, it's funny. It's, it's funny when you think of like an Easter bunny being a part of all that and like having Easter bunnies like at when I, when I was growing up, like the Catholic uh, egg hunts and everything, there was always an Easter bunny there. And it's like, oh, well, what do you have to do with the uh, the Bible and things like that? But it was just kind of like accepted. But and for a while, you tell your kids to believe in the Easter bunny and maybe the Easter bunny exists, right? And that's, that's the Santa Claus. Yeah, it's it's just, it's very interesting to me how like it's culturally acceptable. But like, if you really ask like the, uh, take a look at like the religious dogma, it's like not supposed to be, but it's still accepted by them. Yeah. I don't know. And so that is right that these, yeah that we're actually still living these traditions today, right? That people, to get your buy-in, right? If you have a ancestry from anything Germanic or Ang- Anglo-Saxon and, you know, America was originally English colonies, right? So to get our buy-in to the Christian holidays, we keep doing the Easter Bunny, right? Because somehow, I don't know, just in spring, right? The rabbits come out, you see rabbits hopping around, the birds are hopping around. I wonder if it used to be that people would actually go out and just try to find bird eggs. And that was actually the, the old tradition, like, hey, I found some eggs out in the wild. <laughs> yeah. So like everything with Easter and I appreciate you looking into it. Like, I know it's very topical because Easter Sunday was uh, last Sunday. As far as like what I did know about it, like without researching too much comes from who I believe like an Anglo-Saxon chronicler named Bede, who is alive in the 700s. So the eighth century, he talked a little bit about Anglo-Saxon England when it was still pagan. I think like it, I think all the kingdoms had converted to Christianity at that point, but he talked a little bit about the Anglo-Saxon religion, which is very similar, or like the Anglo-Saxon Germanic religion, which is very similar to like Norse religion, Thunar's Thor, um, Woden is Odin, but Bede included Estora in this. Um, And so a lot of people may like, without doing too much research, say, oh, Estora is a Norse god, but I know she's not, but she's, she might be based on something like in every mythology. So I think it's pretty cool that you kind of went through this. Yeah. One other note, that I wanted to say was in the, uh, the show American gods. And like, I read the books and I, I only watched the first season of American gods. Estora is a character as in, she's like a modern day God. And in this yeah. universe, if you are worshiped, you're naturally going to be more powerful. So the gods exist because they were worshiped. And if you have more worshipers, you become more powerful. And the last season of, or like, excuse me, the last episode of season one is the episode where Estora is in it. And it's really funny because it's Easter Sunday and all of the different versions of Christ were there just loving it because they're getting worshiped even more. Yeah. And Estora is this pagan goddess who's like with all of the versions of Christ and she's like enjoying herself yeah. just because she is like naturally getting some of that, the byproduct of the worship. Right. That the name hasn't so, left, right. That's still what the holidays named after, even though yeah. it's almost been forgotten and all we're left with is Thor in a wedding dress. Right. Very, it's like a very funny premise where she's like, yeah, cool. Like I'm, people don't know they're worshiping me, but they are. So like, I'm enjoying all of this power. And then I think like what, like Odin and company are just like, what are you doing? You're betraying us. Like, yeah, no, but yeah, that she's a, not, not a Norse goddess, but a old Germanic goddess, right. That, that impacted probably some of the Norse stories. So that's, yeah. No, I yeah. like those details you had, which I'm gonna have to look at that source. I'm very curious. Yeah. yeah it's um the, the author is called his, I guess his name now is called the venerable bead and he wrote this like history of like Anglo-Saxon England up until the time that he was alive. And what people do is they like take a look at the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which I have read and then compare it to like Bede's version. And because like a lot of there's like a lot of the similarities, they can 
say like this probably did happen because like it's you can it appears in most sources so it's very it's very good that he was able to write stuff down and we have like some other works to compare with the anglo-saxon chronicle which was written a little bit later than when Bede was alive so i think it's pretty interesting and then Sean, you, um, you, you found something that was interesting you this week, just in looking in the uh, the media, looking in the news this week. So I'll let you take, yeah. take this next uh, section. I think is interesting. If by if by me finding something interesting, you you mean me being a complete fanboy and getting super pumped when it came out. The Thor: Love and Thunder uh, teaser trailer came out, and I apologize if you're a viewer that likes Norse myth but does not like the MCU because they just take many liberties and like manipulate the stories. But uh, I am a huge fan, um, and it's fine. It's fine if you're not, but the Thor Love and Thunder trailer dropped. So I watched it on YouTube a couple times and I'm very excited for the uh, movie to come out. But then after that, I betrayed my own rule that I have for myself. The rule being don't doom scroll or don't look at Twitter slash YouTube comments. But I went ahead and did exactly that with the videos on for Thor Love and Thunder. And I'd say 90% of the comments were very excited. Um, some, some comments were like, it looks boring, blah, blah, blah. But I noticed there was a few people that said, oh, great, Thor is going to have his fourth coming of age movie in four movies. And I know they were what they were doing was they were saying, well, this is like a recycled plot line. Like, let's yeah. let's maybe try to do something different with Thor. Personally, I, I'm, I'm OK with, you know, having these like plot line where Thor has like something bad happen to him. He has to like find a way to overcome it. And then he's better as a result of mm-hmm. overcoming it. Um, because first of all, like there's not that many plot lines that a movie can go. Like there's not many plot line routes that a movie can go in. And when it comes to Marvel movies, I love the fact that they don't take themselves too seriously and you just have to kind of like enjoy the uh, characters. But yeah. I thought it was very interesting because this led to me thinking about the MCU and their version of Thor and like like some of the other Norse gods in comparing it to the stories that you and I have been telling you know, in this podcast over the last couple months, when it comes to the MCU, like they obviously take many liberties. But in my mind, I'm thinking they just keep doing the yeah. hero's journey because that's what you do with heroes. They go on a hero's journey. Yeah. And so like, so with the, uh, with the coming of age stories, it, it's what we've discussed in these, in this podcast multiple times, first of all, the hero's journey, but also, you know, we like to talk about the fact that the Norse gods are not perfect. And a lot of their stories and experiences are very human. So it, it kind of like put me in this mindset of, thinking about like the human life in general or like humans may have a series of events that lead to like this epiphany about how to live their life and they may consider it their coming of age moment and why i think it's okay that the thor movies especially continue doing this is because like often if you have like a coming of age moment life sucks afterwards like there's going to be very shitty things that happens in somebody's life after they have this like epiphany that where they think that they know how to, they know how to live life. I'm thinking like my own self, like when I was 29, I made the decision to move out to Denver where I ultimately met my wife. I started my MBA and I went on a solo trip to Europe for like two weeks. And I consider that like a very eye-opening experience for me. After that, like in finishing up my master's and having like problems with work and like experiencing COVID, like there were so many shitty things that happened in my life. And I know a lot of people have experienced a lot of worse things than that. Like if they ex- experienced the death of a loved one or something like that. So when it comes to the MCU movies and like Thor's arc, his arc is actually one of my favorites in like of all the Avengers superheroes, because he's always, first of all, I think his movies are fun and they're like fun to watch where you don't have to necessarily think too much. But also if you look at what's happened to Thor in these movies, he does have a coming of age moment in the first one. 
in the second movie, like he loses his mother. Another movie loses his father, his hammer. He thinks his brother dies. He fails at killing Thanos before Thanos wipes out half of the universe, after which he becomes a depressed alcoholic. Right. After half so, the world is dead and he's blaming himself. Yeah. Half the universe is dead. He's blaming himself. He becomes a depressed alcoholic. And, you know, in the uh, second Avengers movie, like they make a joke out of it where like Thor is like fat. He looks at the Big Lebowski and it's funny. Like it wasn't expected. I laughed when I first saw it, but Chris Hemsworth does a great job of like kind of playing like the fun part of it, but also experiencing, you know, also like kind of portraying like the sad depression part of it, if that makes sense. You kind of see that if you like rewatch in that mindset where Thor is like going through a very tough time. And he has this moment where he gets his hammer back and he's able to like tell himself, I, I'm still worthy. And I think it's like a very cool moment because it's like, it's supposed to be funny. You know, he, like Fat Thor is able to carry his hammer again, but he's able to like have that moment that allows him to become a hero again and like grow yeah. past it. The MCU, they change so much of the stories, as I mentioned, but they get like one thing that I think is accurate with the the sagas and the fact that like, Thor experiences some like very harsh failures. Yeah. He gets embarrassed like by his father. He gets embarrassed by Utgard Loki. And at first he's kind of like this like young guy who's like kind of like takes on the appearance of a 22 year old who thinks that like he's indestructible right. and he can like just solve all of his problems because he's a hammer and the problem is a nail. No, the thing that makes me think about is this book I'm reading and it's talking about this idea of the, the initiation into manhood, right? From being a boy to being a man, right? In our culture, nobody initiates the boys into being men. It was interesting. It, it connected to me when you said that you went to Europe and for two weeks and you were by yourself, right? You learned to be independent, right? Because that's, that's the way I would interpret it is that's trying to find your own initiation, right? You're trying to find something. You're trying to trying to find something, right? And that's mm-hmm. with, with nobody to be a guide, right? Like uh, Odin has Mimir, right? But a lot of times Thor uh, seems like he doesn't have anybody guiding him, but then he starts to figure things out as he goes along. Well, sometimes he has Loki guiding him, right? Loki's <laughs> maybe not the best influence, right? But yeah, that all these stories, they're just the hero's journey, right? So when people are like, I want a different plot. I don't like the boy becomes the man and the hero, right? Some movies maybe are better at hiding it, right? When it's Thor, he's a hero. So what else is he going to do except be a hero, right? But like, uh, yeah, Star Wars, it's the same thing. Lord of the Rings, it's the same thing. It's just maybe disguised and changed in different ways, right? We'll talk more about that idea of, yeah, the like initiation into manhood, the mature masculine archetypes and things like that. And it's very, it's very interesting again to think about because, like, if you are Thor and like in, in the MCU, he's like a fifteen hundred year old god. So you may look at him and say, "Well, you're a god. Like, you're not supposed to have these experiences, and like, yeah. you should have it figured out by now because you're fifteen hundred years old." Right. But like, then if you like experience like the death of a loved one or something, yeah. like he he has multiple times over, and you're depressed about that, who do you have to like look to to help you through it? And luckily, in Thor's case, he found the Avengers and he has his group of friends. Right. Now it seems in the new trailer, like he became friends with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, that, that's the idea that these these movies are actually the culture that we have currently, right? Maybe for some people, Christianity really does it for them, right? But if they don't, a lot of people probably, the, the Marvel Universe actually is kind of this culture, right? And it's tapping into the old Norse culture, right? And hopefully people who enjoy that, you know, reading a lot about Thor, then they want to learn more about uh, Norse mythology and they listen to our podcast, right? But, that, <laughs> but, but I, I like that point that, yeah, like, because if there's not that initiation into manhood, right, nobody actually initiates you into that, right? You, this is this idea you go through life kind of with boy psychology, never quite knowing what it is to be a man because you've never seen one, basically, right? And then mm-hmm. something happens that's a crisis in life and it requires you to be a man, right? You can't use your boy psychology anymore. And then you're scrambling and looking for whatever it is that will 
help you make that initiation. That's kind of with, yeah, with Thor, right? He, yeah, like his, his father wasn't really there guiding him through these things, but he keeps, he keeps having these different confrontations and he learns a little bit more each time along the way, right? So that's sort of like the midlife crisis would be an idea. You never had a proper initiation. Now you have a midlife crisis. Right? Which I guess Thor experiences multiple, multiple times. Yeah. You live a thousand five hundred years. It's probably going to happen. <laughs> yeah, but in with Thor, I think like when he experiences like a, he's like he falls on hard times, yeah. and he like becomes depressed. Like the best time for him to be a hero is when he re- has those "I'm still worthy" moments. And I think that's something that's very human. Like again, we're going to like go through those ups and downs, but like we would like something happens in our lives that makes us just realize like we are like a positive force, you know, like that's where you're like an actual, actual superhero as that's opposed to it. something to, you don't like wake for. up every day and like, yeah. you're not a superhero for 24 hours. I think what you're describing there is like, it's something to, to work for something to kill for almost, right. Rather than Thor just killing things because he can kill things, right. That he actually has a, a purpose, right. A meaning that's kind of underneath all of that. So sort of a segue in previous episodes, we have often shown that unless it involves Thor killing giants, with his divine hammer, he is often at a disadvantage and prone to failure due to being outwitted, which I've realized that I, I have repeated myself in many consecutive weeks and a little bit earlier in this episode with the MCU Thor. However, last week we sort of saw something different in Thor on um, our last week's episode. And although in Thrymsthida, it did end with Thor killing a bunch of giants with a hammer, most of the story revolved around Thor needing to succeed without his hammer. And to do so, he needed to sacrifice who he was by appealing to his friends, the Aesir, which I'm going to assume are also the Avengers in this story, for help. But he also had to destroy his, quote, manliness by putting on a wedding dress to trick the giants, which ultimately led to getting his hammer back, um, which I thought was also a cool moment. So I think in like last week's episode with Thor putting on a wedding dress and like attending his wedding with Thrym, everything it took to get there, I think he realized that he doesn't necessarily need his hammer, but like obviously when he got his hammer, he'd kill all the giants, but <laughs> no, I um, like he had their quotes, right. He destroys his you know manliness in quotes, right. It's almost this idea, uh, toxic masculinity, right. People talk about that. That's the thing in the, in the culture that's talked about. Nobody knows what to replace that with. I don't think, right. People are like, we need, we need less toxic masculinity and we need whatever is supposed to be under there. That's not toxic. Right. And that's, I think that's a, maybe a, a good metaphor for people thinking of what is uh, what is Thor losing or trying to change? And then what is he supposed to become? The way I look at it is like, why would he have like been reluctant to put on a wedding dress in right. the first place? If, it, if he was able to put his hammer, like get his hammer back. And I don't think he showed any, I don't think he gave Hemdall any pushback when Hemdall recommended the dress. Uh, um, I think Thor was happy just the way they described him. Uh, raging oh, the mountains. The- yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's um, that he, but, he, but he knew it was necessary, right? He had no, he had no choice. Yeah. So anyway, within this week's episode, we're going to see in full swing that maybe Thor is actually growing beyond just being a blunt instrument who kills giants. We see this in the poem Alvis Small, where Thor actually sort of wins a battle of wits against a dwarf named Alvis. And I was uh, reading a bit of the history, kind of the introduction from one of the translations uh, that it dates to the 12th century. And they say that likely it was something that somebody was sitting down trying to make a good example of skaldic poetry. It's probably not really a historical poem that was passed along, but it was somebody who was really trying to, like the way Snorri was trying to really teach people how to remember this skaldic poetry and what all this poetry was like. Somebody kind of constructed this one. Is the, the experts think that's how it, how it went, but it has a lot of kennings. So it's another one where it's, it's a method of maintaining these kennings, showing the context in which they would be used. And they, they kind of go back and forth whether this 
you know, this poet really understood a lot of the mythology, right? Like they had really read it, but maybe they didn't quite understand it perfectly. Yeah, definitely. So stanzas one through four, Alvis, the dwarf, announces abruptly where he seems to have entered a hall where Thor was present, which is probably Thor's hall of Thrudvanger, that he has come to marry Thor's daughter. He seems to have claimed that she has agreed to this marriage without Thor knowing. Thor effectively calls him ugly and states that he has no reason to assume that he is worthy of a bride and certainly not worthy of his daughter, a goddess. I believe his daughter is not mentioned in some translations by name, but I believe his daughter would be Thrud. And I think in your translation, maybe they did mean... No, yeah, and it was just from the uh, kind of the end notes. They, they, from all the other stories, they assume what which goddess. Oh, yeah. uh, Thor doesn't have too many daughters, so kind of assuming who it must be. Yeah. So the poem goes, What prey art thou? Why so pale around the nose? By the dead hast thou lain of late. To a giant lake dost thou look, methink. Thou was not born for this bride. And then Alvis says, Alvis I am, and under the earth, my home beneath the rocks I have. With the wagon guider, a word do I seek. Let the gods their bond not break. And Thor says, break it shall I, for over the bride, her father has foremost right. At home was I not when the promise thou had, and I give her alone to the gods. The Thor was like, well, I wasn't here when the promise was made. Yeah, they, um, they suggest it might have been one of these kind of stories where the, the dwarf made something for the other gods. Probably Loki was getting in trouble with things. And then they're like, well, yeah, if you make us this thing, you can have Thor's daughter. Why not? Right. And Thor's like, I didn't agree to any of this. This is a now Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David, where everything is Loki's fault. Yes, yes. That's my, my uh, Loki archetype, is it is always Loki's fault. Um, <laughs> one of the things the, the author or the translator mentions is that Alvis doesn't seem to recognize Thor. He's talking to Thor like he doesn't know who he is. Apparently, this was a common theme in some other stories, I guess, that, that Thor looked a bit unkempt, right? There was the have all virtues that you're supposed to, even if you don't have an expensive looking suit groom yourself well, braid your beard, yeah. braid your hair, look nice. Apparently Thor is kind of like, you know, a young person who looks like he just woke up. You know, he's always in a rage, so he probably messes up his <laughs> hair quite often. As far as like the actual sources that describe Thor's appearance, like we know he has red hair. And we also know that he's like a very strong god, so he probably has a lot of muscle, but he also eats and drinks a shitload. So he's probably always hungover. He probably looks very cloudy in the morning. He's probably got some meat on him, his bones, because he eats so much. Yeah. So I think I think if you did look at him and like he's always just hungover and like looking like very rough, I could see I could see that that happening. Yeah, and that's where you know he's trying to win Thor's daughter, but they're kind of doing these insults back and forth. And then Alvis has this line where he's talking about Thor's mother, and he says, "Who was bought with rings to bear thee? So who had to be paid to give birth to you?" Is the way to read that. <laughs> Because and they're not necessarily meaning rings like wedding rings. I think the the Norse back then the Lord would give you a a bracelet ring, right? But it's basically saying like his mom didn't. Somebody had to yeah. pay her to. Uh, yeah. In any case, that was one insult. You have to you have to read read that carefully to figure out what's being said there. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I'm sure that's probably accurate. So moving on to stanzas five through seven, Alvis the dwarf asked Thor who he believes he is to deny his daughter her own choice in marriage. Thor answers that he is the son of Odin. Alvis states that he still plans to gain Thor's approval to marry his daughter. So maybe this maybe this is when he realizes who Thor is. Yeah, realizes and he says, to. "Okay, well, instead of insulting you, I am going to try and winning you over by proving my worth to you. Yeah. So you would allow me to marry your daughter, Thred." So he says, yeah, basically, Alvis is saying, "Who do you think you are?" And Thor speaks, "Vingthor, the Wanderer, wide I am." 
and I am Sithgrani's son. Against my will shalt thou get the maid, and win the marriage word. So here Thor is calling himself the Wanderer. Maybe he goes to why he's like looking a little bit in disguise, or he's looking disheveled. Maybe this is, you know, Odin used to be the Wanderer that looked disguised. Maybe Thor is starting to do that. And that uh, Sithgrani means longbeard. So his father is Odin the longbeard, uh, essentially there. If you think about Thor being called the Wanderer, like his father Odin, it weirdly reminds me of one of the chapters in Egil Saga from the Saga of the Icelanders, where there's like a poem. I think it's, state, it's actually like a poem that's um, conveyed by Egil. He mentions the Thunderer. We would see that and say, oh, he's talking about Thor. But it actually says in like the footnotes, he's talking about Odin. Yeah. And so like, I'm wondering if like you look at the uh, duel with Thul, excuse me, Thor versus Hrungnir, and like that was like the one source where Thor is like uh, involved in like there being like a lot of thundering yeah, or like a lot of lightning and thunder. Like that's where it's like, well, maybe he learned that from Odin as well. Yeah, that would make sense. And that's where, you know, in, in the Greek mythology, Zeus is the one who's very much like Odin and he's the one who has the thunderbolt and the lightning. So it's some kind of parallel, right? And then the sun starts to become the father and all of these ideas. So stanza eight, Thor states that he would grant approval for Aldis to marry his daughter Thrud if he could answer every question he had about the world. And what I like about this is this leads into a series of um, questions that Thor poses to Alvis, where, you know, saying, May, prove yourself worthy to marry my daughter. However, as a reader, we get a lot of world building. We get yeah. to say, oh, this is what this is called. This is what this is called. And it's not unlike uh, Odin speaking in Grimnismal or like the Syrah speaking in Voluspa. It's very interesting when these poems, like, lend themselves to the world building that allows you know, us to understand the world's more. Yeah. And it's the thing that I, I, I never would have overthought it this much, but the, I like that the translator caught this, right? Cause it's kind of a trivia contest. Uh, Thor says, I want you to tell me, you know, for these 13 different words, what they mean in all the nine realms, right? What's the word for it in all different nine realms, but he only answers for three realms, Midgard, Asgard, and Jotunheim, but he only includes Alfheim 11 times. He includes Vanir nine times. He includes hell, which whether that's um, either hell or uh, Niflheim, right? Yeah, yeah Niflheim or Niflheim hell, right? That gets confused, yeah. But also in some of the answers that this this guy's a dwarf talking, but he confuses whether he's talking about dwarves or elves or whether he's talking about dwarves or giants. You know, the, the language isn't very easy. You realize he didn't actually complete the task at the end, but Thor does ask like he did a great job. So that's an interesting little detail. It goes back to the, these words. They're they're very strange, The you know, the words for the different realms. And it got me looking into actually how they're written in Old Norse as I'm trying to figure out, you know, like, is he actually talking about the Jotun here or is he talking about the elves? We're talking about dark elves or light elves, right? That's where I actually started looking at the Old Norse and it just sounds very cool. So I'm going to try a little bit. Jorth hithir myth monum. Earth it is called by men. En myth asum fold. Ends by Aesir, field. Kala vega vanir. Called ways or roads. By the Vanir. Igrean Jotunar. Evergreen by the Giants. Alfar Groandi. Alfar, call it the Grower. Kala ar Upregen. Called Moist or Mud by the High Ones. It's interesting, John. Do you see any parallels where some of those like either look or sound a little like the English? It's yeah, kind of Old Norse right? is very insane, but uh, yeah. <laughs> It's it, like you I can see it like when it's next to each other, yeah. It. Yeah, sometimes you can't necessarily uh, see it, but you can hear it, right? And then also it's that it depends which English word you use, right? You can, like sometimes, those are sort of my translations, actually. I was looking at a lot of different ways they've translated it. 
to figure out which ones look a lot like the old Norse words. But in there, he's talking about the humans in Midgard. We have the Aesir, we have the Vanir, which they call the veins in some of the translations. And then we have the Jotun, we have the Alfar, and we have the, the high ones, so the, the up rain, like the ones who rain from up high. So it's like, do the ones who rain up high, are they gods or are they the light elves that we used to call Alfheim? Are these Alfar actually the dark elves? The dwar- right? yeah, yeah. And, and it's funny because like I was, I know like I prepared for this episode by reading Jackson Crawford's translation. Yeah. And at the very end of every stanza where they describe something, it's, it's always the dwarves. It always says the dwarves call it this, right. except in this one, which is stanza nine. I believe yeah. when it's like Thor says, what is the earth called? They do men, the Aesir, the Vanir, the Jotun, the elves. And then it says high ones instead of dwarves. And so I'm yeah. wondering if like in this case, the high ones or like the high gods or whatever they, they're called are the dwarves, which doesn't make sense when you take into account the fact that like to the dwarves, like having to be like below ground or something like that, or like yeah. not being able to see the sun. And then there's places where they call the dwarves the Deverger. So that's the word for dwarf. And sometimes they'll have both the Alfar and the Dverger in the same stanza. Yeah. So it's like, which ones are dwarves and which ones are elves? There's even one where they list the Jotunar twice. And so I'm like, yeah, it's very, <laughs> it's a mess. Like all these things are, right? Yeah. Again, like what happened, like when Thor asked these questions, like, what is this called? Alvis goes into describing like how it's called by each race and like chapter, or excuse me, stanza nine or 10, excuse me, was earth. Then they explain what sky is. And they have all these yeah, interesting uh, kennings, right? So there's a word for the Vanir call it the weaver of wind, right? The sky is the weaver of wind. The dwarves call it the dripping hall, right? Because to the dwarves, there is no sky. They just have their uh, caves there. <laughs> yeah. The next stanza is the moon, which the elves call the teller of time, which yeah. makes, makes sense. Yeah. The sun is the, the deceiver of the Dvalin to the dwarves, the all glowing to the sons of the gods. So there's a separate one for the gods, but the sons of the gods, I don't know if that means the Alfar or something else, it's called the the all-glowing, the deceiver of Dvalin that's explaining that the sun, when it deceives the dwarves, they're turned to stone. Yeah, no, that, that's just very interesting to me. Think about that is because like the elves are definitely present in Asgard in like many of the, uh, many of the stories. So I'm just like wondering what that connection is there, but oh, yeah. we, can, we can move on. Yeah. So clouds are called the kites of the wind. They're called water hope. They're called the helmets of secrets in hell. And I see that you made a, a note in uh, Old Norse, David. Yeah, so that one's, it's the uh, Kala i Helui Yalam Huil. So they, <laughs> some, some of these, they don't be, entirely yeah. know how to translate them, but they think that might mean the brains of the grandfather. Um, that uh, no, it makes sense. I mean, what was, what was the name of, yeah, right. Yeah, Emir's... Uh, Brains are up, are the clouds up in the sky, right? So that's one of the places that idea might come from. Next one, let's see. The wind is called the whaler by giants, and in hell they call it the blustering blast. So the sea, so the water is called the eel home by the giants. It's called the drink stuff by the elves, elves, excuse me. And for the dwarves, its name is the deep. Yeah. So that was one where they definitely listed both the elves and the dwarves. This goes back to the book that I liked, The Echo of Odin. Uh, I think the author's name is, last name is Smith. He has this theory that the reason they don't have answers for everything for the elves is that we are definitely talking about the Alfar, the, the ones from um, Alfheim, and that they just don't have words for certain things. So I'll, I'll come back to that point later. 
but drink stuff, the word in Old Norse is lagastaf, which is apparently a word that shows up almost nowhere else, like in history. The translator even says they don't know what it means, but that's what they think it means, lagastaf. Awesome. <laughs> and I thought it sounds a little bit like the word lake, the word laga. So it's like maybe the stuff you fill the lake with, but that's me translating. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So fire is called the biter by the giants, the burner by the dwarves, and it's called the swift in the house of hell. Yeah, that was a, that. There's there's no word given for fire for the uh, the alfar. So the woods was the next one. Thor says, "What are the woods called?" And Alva says, "Flame food by the giants, fair limbs by the elves, and the wand it is called by the Wanes, which I think is supposed to be the Vanir. The, the Vanir. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, and I included a section from the poem for for night, and it says. What call they the night, the daughters of Nor, in each and every world? Night, men call it. Darkness, gods name it. The hood, the holy ones on high. The giants, lightless. The elves, sleeps joy. The dwarves, the weaver of dreams. So I was like that whoever these, the holy ones on high are, but that's not the gods. They already listed the gods. They list the holy ones on high. They also list the dwarves and they list some other type of elf, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in this. I want to know the answer, but there's no answer. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a lot of inconsistencies. Uh, my favorite right there is uh, the elves called the the night sleep joy. Yeah, right. The elves like- Of course, if you're asleep and you're an entity, you appreciate the night because more people are sleeping. Yeah. And then I also included that whole uh, section of the poem. Thor is saying, he says, what do they call the night? The daughter of Nor. So the daughter of Nor is another kenning he includes- and so Nor is presumably the giant that Snorri in the prose edda calls Norvi or Narfi, who's the, but the Narfi is the father of not, of night. So whether night is feminine or masculine, you know, you'll have to decide. Yeah. Oh, did oh, you yeah. want to take uh, uh, That was seats? another side note was that sometimes oh. it says men call it this and men also call it that. They'll call it something else. And they just assume that that means they mean dead men, the men in hell. It's another thing where they're just like, yeah, he just says that men call it this twice. And what do you do with that? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so did you want to take uh, seeds? Uh, yeah, the seeds. Yeah. So the, the seeds is also called the drink stuff, laga stuff by the elves. And so again, it's the same word for water and grain. The elves have the same word and they don't have a word for beer so that you, you can try to interpret that. Do they not like beer or they really like beer? Uh, they named it twice. I don't. Yeah. Who knows? I'll yeah. And hopefully they like beer. I mean, yeah. But no, one of the ideas is that this is again from Smith as he would suggest the elves actually, they don't, they don't do have so many vices, right? They're up in Alfheim. They're all, they're all good. So they don't have vices like drinking where the dark elves, I think like to drink and that's where they're stealing the meat of poetry and uh, all these things like that. But maybe the elves are too good for beer. Yeah. That could be the case. I know we have previously discussed uh, uh, Volans, I guess the, uh, the, the poem with Volan the Smith, who is an elf. Yeah. And he was like this very, he was like a good elf. And then he got corrupted by men. Right. And then it became this like murderous, uh, you know, revenge driven being. And, you know, I, I think it, that makes sense, right? Because between the Jotun, the Vanir and the Aesir, you can like become an Aesir just by kind of moving there, right? Like you can be, you can join that tribe, right? So are there elves that can join the, the light elves or they can be demoted down to there, the dark elves, right? That seems plausible, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> my theories i come up with awesome so the last one here is ale which is amazing for me obviously i maybe when i do a drink of the week i can like come up with one of these cannons next time yeah. ale to the vanier is called the foaming it's called bright droughts by the giants it's called feast droughts for certain sons 
Which of you want to take that one, David? Oh, and just, yeah, and there's no answer for the elves. And so they, they list bright draft for Jotun and then feast draft for Sutting's sons. And Sutting is a giant. So they list giants twice here. Uh, who knows what that means, right? That's, yeah. Yeah. Sutting's sons, Sutting being the giant from the Mita poetry. So that, that's it. Uh, so stanzas nine through 34. So again, like we, we briefly discussed the premise in like stanzas one through uh, eight one, or one through nine. Every stanza up until stanza 34 has been Thor asking Alvis these questions. What is called this? Or like, what do beings call this? What do beings call this? Alvis successfully answers all of them. And he gives like the reader us an ability to understand the world of the Norse mythology a lot better. So then the final stanza, Thor reveals that enough time has lapsed that the sun has come up. The sun coming up turns Alvis into stone. So Thor has deceived the dwarf and he no longer has to worry about his daughter, Mary and Alvis, the dwarf. In a single breast, I have never seen more wealth of wisdom old, but with treacherous wiles must I now betray thee. Upi ertu, the verger of Dagadur. Up are you, dwarf, in the day. New skin soul, Isali. Now shines the sun in the hall. And that's how the poem ends. So Alvis yeah. turns the stone and then Thor has successfully tricked the dwarf when, if you think about like Thor from the previous episodes, why did he just not hit the dwarf in the head with a hammer? That Thor so has like, learned that Thor has learned how to be tricky, and that uh, yeah, that sometimes it's not appropriate to kill the person who uh, your friends have promised your daughter to, because that wouldn't be honorable, right? Thor's Thor's worried about honor, so but you can trick him. Yeah, but it, I think it's great because like if you look at um even in the episode with Thor the fisherman, he takes a disguise as a boy because he thinks it's going to be necessary because he needs a boat to take him out into the sea if he's Thor the god of thunder or if he's like the mighty thor a giant is not going to want to take him on the boat to the sea so he takes a disguise last week in uh thor the bride to be for his wedding he agrees to like destroy who he is and take on this disguise that ultimately leads into him getting his hammer back so he is starting to learn not every problem not not everything in life is a nail and he's a hammer i like to think that he's learning something from odin and utgard loki because of the embarrassment that he experienced with them. I'm not sure if you had anything to add there, David, or... No, I'm just looking ahead the next part of about, uh, about Thor's daughter, right? So yeah, we don't have too much mentioned. Yeah, um, so yeah. in, in Skald Skoppermal of the uh, Proseta, Thrud is mentioned in a kenning where Thor is referred to as the father of Thrud. And then there is a Karlevi runestone that exists today. So there's like an archaeological uh, basis for this... Uh, thought of Thread being Thor's daughter. The runes on the, on the Karlavi runestone translate to hidden lies the one whom followed must know that the greatest deeds, Thrud's warrior of battles in this mound, never will a more honest, hard-fighting wagon vidder upon Endel's expanses rule the land in Denmark. A lot of that I don't understand, but it does mention Thrud. Yeah. And thread in the sources is known as Thor's daughter. So then I think they said that the word thread, or I think it goes back to the, it's either thread or through means might, right? So Thor's daughter's name is might. I just found that very cute that, uh, that she's his might, right? He named her might because it's, she's Thor's might. Yeah. In any case though. Yeah. So it's kind of saying, right. That, that might's warrior of battles, right. But that 
they're not just saying he's a mighty warrior, right? They might actually connect into this idea like he's he's mighty, like, you know, inspired by Thor's daughter, right? Something that kind of has all these connections, like the Kennings kind of idea. Yeah. So one thing I just want to go back to, if you look at Thor and you like have a family tree up of Thor in the Norse in the Norse uh, stories, we know his father is Odin. His mother is the Earth. Yeah. So he's not Frigg's son, as I mentioned earlier. His wife is Sif, who I know we're going to get into a little bit deeper in, um, you know, within the next few weeks here. His son is Magni, and his daughter is Thred. Yeah. Also, Sif has a son named Ullr, who is not Thor's son. So Thor has a stepson named Ullr, who I think is also a very interesting character, but I'm sure we're going to get to at some point at a later date. But based on the stories that we've discussed so far, that's Thor's family tree. Yeah. Was it correct that his, so his daughter is his like legitimate child from from Sif, but then his sons are like illegitimate sons from giants. I believe so. I think Magni is, um, has a different mother. No. So yeah, I like, I just like all the, you know, trying to figure out what all the words mean. And it definitely caught me into that. You know, how did they say it in old Norse, right? Because it's translated so many different ways. Some of the notes say they don't even know how to translate some of the words. And then that point that, you know, how is Thor growing and developing, right? You referred to earlier about Thor in the, the Marvel universe, right? That mm-hmm. aspect of him coming of age, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's one of these things that I'm reading as I read about the, the this archetype of initiation, this idea of, you know, what is in old cultures, how was a boy initiated into being a man, right? Being part of that masculine culture of the society. And I'm reading another book. It's called The King, the Warrior, the Magician, and the Lover. So it's about these four major archetypes, right? So the one is the the king, right? Kind of like Odin, be the king. The warrior is kind of like Thor, right? Well, the magician is kind of also like Odin, right? Actually, I would say the king is more like Tyr, right? Um, mm-hmm. The magician is more Odin. And then the lover is probably uh, Freyr, but we don't hear as much about him, right? The yeah, It's interesting, as you're saying about the people want them to do a new Thor movie that's about something different. I'm like, well, they could do a, a rom-com with Thor. Like that'd be a different <laughs> plot that nobody's seen before, right? If you're tired of hearing the hero's journey story, but, <laughs> but that's not exactly right. Part of Thor usually, but I don't know, maybe with love and thunder, is it a bit of a, a romantic movie? Uh, don't I don't think so. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, we don't know. It's a teaser trailer and like they, they teased a few things. Um, yeah. Like they, yeah, there is, there's a few teasers in there. They, I think they showed Zeus, who I believe is played by Russell Crowe, by the way. Oh yeah. Um, and like Natalie Portman's there, and like she has like this one like badass like scene. Um, I, I, yeah. So I, it I, might I, be it might be a romantic comedy, but I feel like that was also the first two Thor movies. So. No, it may be more that than she's the the lover aspect, right? So that that idea, yeah, that the the lover God is missing in a lot of these stories, right? But it's probably a uh, Freyr. So the idea is that the the mature man has all these aspects, or it's kind of like the ideal. You're trying to be the ideal man. Part of you is the king. Part of you is a, a warrior. Part of you is a magician, which maybe is kind of like a scholar, but it's also maybe kind of spiritual, right? And then the lover, right? Which is kind of being able to actually love yourself, love, care for people, right? Not just Not just in marriage and your children, but also kind of like loving people you know, you want that in a king. So the idea is that these all overlap, right? A good king is also a warrior, but is also a lover, also actually loves his subjects. He doesn't just want to, you know, exploit them for as much money as he can get out of them, right? As much as he can tax yeah. them. A good king wants to, for their benefit, right? It's, he's taxing them, but how is he going to give back and build their world into something better? But maybe he does need to do it to pay, you know, an army, right? To keep them safe. I'll skip a little bit, but I'll just contrast it with the idea of what they say, that boy psychology, it starts with something very similar to that king, warrior, magician, lover. But uh, this author, um, Roger Moore, sorry, 
Robert Moore, Roger Moore, the, the James Bond, Roger Moore's James Bond, and Robert Moore is the author. Yeah, that nice. uh, he would say the hero is actually the boy, right? So the boy, as he becomes an adolescent, becomes the hero, right? So when you get tired of hearing the same story for all these hero stories, it's because he hasn't yet become this idea of the true king warrior yet, right? He's still trying to find himself. He's trying to prove himself, right? So the idea is it starts with the divine child. It's kind of like if you think of uh, when Jesus Christ is first born, right? It's just this divine child that everyone is amazed by. And it's that idea that the child gets all their needs met. Whatever the child wants, they get, right? Because they're only two months old, right? So it's they get whatever they want. At some point, they have to learn that life doesn't work that way. They don't just get whatever they want. But to start, that is correct, right? Then there's the, the Oedipal child. So this is like the Oedipus complex. If you get stuck there, you're staying in the Oedipus complex. And this is the one they call it and it's, it's actually a phase everyone has to go through where they really love their mom and they're you know close to their mom and always around. But then at some point, they have to start doing their own things, right? Do boy things, do man things. It's like a water jar boy, right? You can't always just stay with the women. At one point, you're like, grandpa, take me out hunting. I don't care if it's dangerous, right? That would be the idea there. The precocious child is kind of the kid who knows it all. This is the idea that Loki is actually a negative form of this in the trickster. But it's basically a kid who he's getting more sure of himself but he can't challenge the world. He's very confident by himself, you know, sitting in his room, you know, he's developing an internal strength a little bit to be himself, but maybe he's afraid of other people, right? So then he has to, the last stage is kind of to integrate the hero into all of that and go out and take on the world and uh, conquer something, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we, we already went, we've been kind of gone kind of long today, Sean, but what are your thoughts just as I describe some of these archetypes, the idea that these are supposed to go together in a way they kind of integrate with each other, but they're also... The different archetypes that show up in the in the stories. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about the uh, I guess the the king, the yeah. warrior, and the magician. Because with Odin being Thor's father, and like I know we I know we've talked way too much about the MCU today. <laughs> so again, I apologize to our listeners if you don't like the MCU. But in like that arc, you see like Odin saying that Thor is not ready to take the throne because he's a child. He yeah. thinks he's he thinks this is all a game. He thinks he's indestructible and he's going to get himself killed by doing something right. stupid. I see that in these stories. And you also see in Harvard's Law, Thor, like Odin going out of his way to embarrass his son because he thought he needs to learn a lesson. And I know in uh, you and I have like talked about how like Thor's duel versus Frugnir may have been orchestrated by Odin to like potentially teach him a lesson as well. I'm wondering how much of this is like, I know you mentioned like King is probably, it may be Tyr, but if you are looking at Odin, the Allfather, how much of this is him like kind of like trying to get force Thor to go through these journeys? Right. One of the way I, I view it is, yeah, that like Odin is the, he's the king magician, right? He's a bit of both. He used to be more of a warrior. He used to go out on adventures, but now he stays home. And Tyr was the king, but now Tyr is like a little bit retired is how I look at the whole, <laughs> all these things. And exactly what you're saying, that, that Thor is kind of the hero, right? But like, that's the boy hero, right? And the boy hero might, he kills everything he can kill, right? He's out and smashes all the giants, right? But then the warrior, right? The masculine warrior would be that he kills people when he has to kill people, but he would, you know, if, if he didn't have to, he doesn't, right? That he can, somebody can surrender and he can kind of honor that, right? Sometimes I think Thor has a hard time with that. Sometimes he just finds it right when he's ready to kill uh, Thialfi's whole family. And then he's like, let me calm myself down, right? That's him getting closer to that. Yeah. But that, like you're saying in the, in the movie that, uh, Odin wants to see that Thor is actually a warrior and not just a hero, right? That he can be a warrior who, who can destroy things and also love, right? And he can also think ahead, the magician, kind of the tactician, right? Um, mm -hmm. Not just act impulsively in the moment. So yeah, it's an interesting thing to apply to right, movies and, and uh, stories and media 
but then trying to turn it internally and see what aspects of yourself do you have all four of these, right? Or like these stories, are you missing the lover component, right? And things like that in your in your life or your personality, right? So yeah, um, definitely. And then just as you're saying, right, some people might be tired of the Marvel universe. It's that idea that, you know, the there's the old myths, but we have they're the new myths that we have, right? If you if you don't like those, then write better myths, right? Come up with a better story <laughs> that people will yeah. use because uh otherwise all we have right, you know, is you go back to the old stories or the people recreating it, right? There's not modern poets doing it. It's uh, the Marvel universe. So well, yeah, and and that's it's funny you say that because like if you look at like Vikings and Norse mythology are so in right now. Yeah. And it's like I'm not, I'm not lying, like there there would vampires were like 15 years ago. You see like Thor Love and Thunder, the fourth Thor movie in like 10, 10 years coming out. The Northman comes out literally in two days. Yeah. And it's like you'll you see like the show Vikings, like The Last Kingdom, like these are all like different interpretations and the arts, the artists are going to like make up their own shit to make it like work for television yeah. or like, or like the movie, the movie screen. But like, ultimately like, that's kind of what Snorri did. And that's what the authors of like the different poems in the poetic edit did. They right. kind of just gave their own interpretation of something 200 years after the fact. I'm not saying in the year 3000, I want Vikings to be looked at as a source for Norse mythology, but like, I think it's, I think it's kind of cool that, you know, people are so captivated by this subject where they like feel the need to tell their own story through these characters, like, especially with Thor and the MCU, like what can like Thor experiencing all this real stuff happening to him? Yeah. Like that's absolutely shitty. Like life sucks sometimes, you know, yeah. like wh- how is he going to respond to that? He's a superhero. He's going to, he's going to like rise up to the occasion when he needs to. And for like many people that can mean he like is able to pick up his hammer. He's still worthy. That means like, maybe they're able to, maybe like somebody decides, you know what, I'm going to put the drink down. I'm not going to drink anymore. Like that's their superhero moment. And I think it's kind of cool that like a lot of people are driven to the MCU and they're able to like make those connections to find like their own worth, if that makes sense. Yeah. Not to get too cheesy or, or cliche, but like, I do think a lot of people look at these movies and they like look at a character like Thor or like Iron Man and say like, I, that's me. Like that's the hero archetype. Maybe like not at that level, but like, in my own way, I am capable of being better. And yeah. I think like these stories yeah. were written for that reason. Like these stories like in the 1300s or the 1200s were written for that reason. Yeah, no, and I think that would be that idea, right? That you, you know, cause you're not actually as all powerful as Thor, right? But do you try to like, right, approach every problem like a thing you can destroy or you can smash or maybe like solving a problem, but that doesn't help when you get to a problem you can't solve, right? So that's where you need those other aspects, the magician, the lover, things like that, right? So that Thor yeah. lacks those things. You're like, oh, I lack those things too. Maybe I can build more of that in myself. And, and, yeah. And, or like reach out, like ask your friends, like ask the Avengers for yeah. help. Like nobody should be above that. So, I mean. Oh yeah. The, uh, as you mentioned vampires and there used to be the thing. I did have a moment where I thought about this dark elf or the, yeah, this elf um, being tricked into staying in the sunlight. And I'm like, that's every vampire story where you're like, let me see if I can trick them into the sunlight. So they'll catch into flame and they burn up. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't have anything to do with anything except maybe the dark elves are kind of like the vampire archetype, but I'm gonna have to think about that one. I could just see this like on like a some some research paper between two ravens states vampires existed in the, yeah. the Norse mythology. Somewhere I heard that somebody did do a, a dissertation on uh, like people who believe they're vampires in real life. Yeah, but there's that dissertation's out there somewhere if you want to search for it. But I, I can't Fantastic. remember where it came from. Yeah. Anyway, Sean, we're just getting into side conversations. Uh, how do we wrap it up or do we just wrap uh, it up? I mean, that's it. I appreciate everybody listening and uh, listening to me geek out over a one minute long trailer that features Thor working out or Chris Hemsworth working out. Yeah. 
and Natalie and Natalie Portman. I, th I think I don't know if they have a do they have a love a love triangle a love interest between them. I don't think that. Um, I think Thor showed up in at the beginning of the Thor movie. He tells Loki, "We broke up, but it was mutual. It was totally mutual." So we right. haven't seen her since then. So. Right. so it's not it's not necessarily a romantic comedy, but it's Thor being very awkward, not knowing how to be the lover. That sounds maybe he figures it out by the end, though. That'd be a new new plot twist. They Anyways. need you on set for these movies. Like, well, Thor, what, what architect are you playing right now? Like, are you being a lover or what? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so. that's it. Thanks, David. Have, Have a good night. night. Bye. Yep. Bye, Sean. Bye.